It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So I know many of you are reveling in something that I am still mourning, and that is the loss of my Blue Devils this past weekend. Um, For all the state fans that are chuckling over this, just remember, you didn't even get invited to the NIT. Uh, And for all you Carolina fans, just wait until you face the ultimate nature that is to come in the Final Four. But alas, this is not the first and last time in my life I have led to great disappointment in my sports teams. I am a lifelong New York Mets fan. That's a lifetime of disappointment. And and there's been so many disappointments that have come with it. In 2007, literally, there are 17 games left in the season. We are sitting on the biggest cushion that any team had ever sat in, and we lost 12 of the next 17 games, losing by one game to miss everything. Uh, In 2000, the New York Mets lost to the the dreaded Empire in the World Series altogether. Carolina Hurricanes, after winning in 2006, finally made it back to the playoffs in 2009, one game away from possibly playing for a Stanley Cup and disappointment yet again. And I will never forget literally sobbing on my hands and knees in 1999 when Duke was going almost undefeated into the national championship game and lost to UConn. There have been disappointments in my life, to say the least, when it comes to sports. Now, all that is in comparison to the disappointment that the characters of our text will face as they are waning and waxing through the aftermath of Jesus' death. And so take a look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verse 1. We're taking a break today from our series throughout the Bible and just focusing in on the resurrection today. Now, I want you to try to get into the mind of the disappointment that had come with the death of Jesus. These people literally left everything. They left their homes their businesses, left their families to follow this rabbi that they believed to be the Messiah, the one that was going to change everything. And all that comes crashing in as he takes his last breath on the cross. Everything shatters. And they're living in this state of complete and utter disappointment. But what can we learn from the aftermath of this death? We're going to encounter it with the characters of the text. Luke 24 verse 1 says this, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered it, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. You see, as we enter into the narrative of this text, we see these women who are dealing with all the the ramifications, uh, all the issues, all these things clouding around them, the huge disappointment the mourning factor that comes into play and they're coming to the tomb to prepare the body of Jesus. For many of us growing up in church, we've heard the crucifixion story so many times that sometimes it becomes watered down. We fail to recognize what it is that Jesus experienced in those hours, what it is that his followers experienced in the days afterwards. Jesus is arrested. And he's arrested under false pretenses. They immediately put false charges on him and and bring him before this mockery of a court to charge him, claiming that he has claimed to be the Son of God, something that Jesus really rarely actually claimed upon himself in the Gospels. 
And as a result, he, they begin to, to beat him. They spit on him. They drag him uh, before Pontius Pilate because it's according to their rules that they need to bring him to this Roman procreator who can take care of Jesus, who can have Jesus executed. But Pontius Pilate doesn't find anything wrong with Jesus, and so he wants to turn him back over to the people. But the people aren't appeased enough. And so what happens is they begin to have Jesus beat and mutilated. It says that they used a cat of nine tails to flog and to scourge Jesus. Literally picture a whip that on the end of this whip of multi-tails has shards of glass and bone. It's intended to rip into the flesh of whoever they're beating and to tear away at the muscle tissue. And so Jesus is not only mocked, not only falsely accused, but he's mutilated beyond recognition. And the Roman guards are trying to make it even worse because they make a mockery of Jesus. They take a a crown of thorns, of thick thorns, and they smash it down onto his head. And they throw this robe around him and begin to mock him as king of the Jews. You imagine that as an awful experience. But then, as if that wasn't good enough, they, they forced Jesus to literally carry his execution through the streets of Jerusalem. Can you imagine getting anything smashed down on any kind of cut but a mutilated back? Jesus has this thrust upon him, and he's literally wandering through the streets of Jerusalem up to the hill that would be his execution. And there they stretched out his arms, one hand nailed, probably dislocating his shoulder to nail down the other. They lift him up, which brings his body to a halting stop. And there the Son of God literally is beginning to suffocate to death. Literally having to push himself up in order to take a breath in his body. And so there Jesus suffered. The word excruciating literally means from the cross. Can you imagine that? entire word dedicated to describe what somebody experienced on the cross. And so maybe we should be more mindful when we talk about something being excruciating, comparing it to the cross. And on the ground, the Roman soldiers are are mocking, they're jeering at Jesus. The religious leaders are literally laughing their heads off, mocking him as he hangs there. And a short little while into this, Jesus cries out to God. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Eloi, Eloi, Lampa, Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And with one last cry out, the Gospels tell us that Jesus died. On May the 7th, 1945, German forces surrendered to the Allies. And on September the 2nd, 1945, the war officially ended with the signing of the Japanese military commander on the battleship USS Missouri. In the aftermath of the ugliest war in human history, over 60 million people were dead, which is about 3% of the world's population. Higher figures will say over 80 million, including the deaths of war-related things like famine and disease. Take, take this into mind. Uh, the civilian uh, total of death was 50 to 55 million, including 19 to 28 million from war-related diseases. The total military death was 21 to 25 million, including the deaths of those captive, about 5 million prisoners. Just imagine the aftermath of such a horrible act in human history. Where do you even begin to pick up the pieces 
I recently finished a book called Year One, and it was talking about 1945 and beyond, how the world began to pick up the pieces and put life back together. And in reality, life has never been the same since World War II. And so I I use that to put myself in the minds of these women who are quietly and somberly coming to the tomb of Jesus. They're there to prepare his body for burial. Now, burial is a little different in the ancient world, especially in the Jewish tradition, because it wasn't exactly like they embalmed people. It actually took up to a year of a burial process. You said you would put somebody in the tomb, you would prepare their bodies with spices and with oils and wrap them. And after about a year after the decay, coming down to the bones and the very ashes of a person, they would then collect whatever was left of that person and put it into an ossuary. It was a, a clay container that the rest of the remains of those who came before them happened to. So this is what the women are doing. They're coming to the tomb to prepare Jesus' body. They're, they're dealing with the disaster and the tremendous outcome of what is, is taking place. And all this, all this in hopes of honoring their Lord. Uh, I had a streak recently um, at Mosaic where I literally was ruining every single spoiler of a movie and TV show. I, it was about a month-long streak. And it's, it's hard to do nowadays uh, because everybody watches Netflix and Hulu. Nobody ever watches anything on time. And so there's uh, endless opportunities for us to spoil things that happen. And, and it's the worst thing to be the recipient of, of anything spoilage when it comes to something that you're watching. Uh, so I figured this morning to help us understand there's a few things I can spoil that um, maybe you won't get too upset about. Uh, so, by the way, Titanic, the ship sank. Uh, Bruce Willis, he was dead the entire time. Uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, it wasn't King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table. It was a bunch of crazy people who escaped from a loony bin, and they're, they're on their own little mission. A Beautiful Mind, Russell Crowe, he was just seeing the people the whole time. Kevin Spacey, he was Kaiser Sose in Usual Suspects. Batman, he turned on autopilot. He didn't actually die in the nuclear explosion that happened. Harry, he dies, but then he comes back to life and defeats Voldemort. So the ultimate spoiler alert, Jesus isn't dead. Take a look at verse 4. It says, while they were wandering about this, suddenly two men in their clothes gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In the fright, the women bowed down their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember, he told you while he was still in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered unto the hands of the sinner, must be crucified, and on the third day raised to life. Can you imagine the shock of what's happening within these women's bodies? They literally watched Jesus die. They're mourning. They're, they're working through the process of all that comes with the tragedy like this. And then all of a sudden, two men show up in like just white garb. I like to think that those angels were like, hey, let's really bleach these clothes. We're really going to freak them out when we jump in front of them. And all of a sudden, these, these angels, these messengers appear before these women to tell them that he is not here. He is alive. Spoiler alert, he comes back from the dead. This is one of the most profound moments. This is the most profound moment in human history. Take this all in. Imagine being told and convinced that something was done, it was over, but all of a sudden, new life is beginning to sprout because of the resurrection. 
It's a new reality they have to live into. And the story's not done. It says in verse 8, they remembered his words. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He told us this, like, over and over and over again. We're finally remembering it now. Verse 9, it says, when they came back from the tomb, they told all the things to the eleven and to the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other of them that told the disciples. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to be like nonsense. Guys, just a quick lesson from Scripture has nothing to do with the resurrection. Women are a whole lot smarter than us. Maybe we should stop being so pickhead and actually listen every once in a while. No, no amen from the women from that? Really? Wow. So we learned from these texts that even the ancient guys were idiots. We don't believe them. And, 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 and so here it is that they're coming to live this message and the guys are like, whatever. These guys, they're, they're, they're crazy people is essentially what the disciples are saying. Verse 12, Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. I love this moment of the resurrection story. These women are so overwhelmed by this moment. They're so uh, changed by this moment to hear the news that Jesus is no longer dead, but he he is alive. They are immediately, in in their haste, are running back to the disciples. They're panting. They're they're, they're tired. They're trying to fumble and tell the greatest news in human history that God is not dead, that God is alive. He is resurrected from the death we have given him. Take that in for just a moment. And I think it's fascinating for all our brothers and sisters in in the kingdom of God that want to suppress the voice of others. We learn something very important from scripture. Who did God pick to give the greatest sermon the world has ever heard? It was a group of women. A group of women in a patriarchal society that told them they had no place except as second and third class citizens. God chose them to deliver the greatest message this world has ever heard. For many of us, we struggle with the resurrection. I love how the disciples immediately didn't believe it. In the days and weeks to come, we will read the stories of the Gospels and and the narrative that takes place of so many of the disciples that just couldn't simply believe that he had resurrected. The word doubting comes synonymous with the name Thomas. This is the Easter story, though. For many of us, we doubt the resurrection. We might doubt the physical resurrection, that it's possible that, that someone can literally go from death to life. We doubt the the capabilities of the resurrection of what it actually might mean to us. And so we struggle and we undermine what it is that God is doing through the cross and through the resurrection. How could a man who claimed to be God resurrect from the dead? And even if it's possible, how, how does it affect me? That's the question I want us to ask ourselves this morning. What does it matter to me? We're just a few weeks away from the 2016 NFL draft. And of course, the last two months have been filled with all these mock drafts. These people that get paid millions of dollars to predict who's going to get drafted. And they're never right. You notice they're never right. But yet they still give them a paycheck of a million dollars a year to do this. And then the last few months we've been filled with um, these really large men running in these really tight clothes, doing a 40-yard dash. that's not really saying anything about their abilities because running a 40-yard dash in tight clothes has no ramifications or connection to running 40-yard dash in full pads. Okay, anyways, I have issues with the NFL draft. But we're going to sit here and we're going to watch this at the end of April. And for all the years I've watched the NFL draft, there has been so many first-round flops, it's not even funny. But one particular one that comes to mind, a guy named Jamarcus Russell who came out of LSU. Signing day, he made $68 million to lose seven games to the – or win seven games to the Oakland Raiders. That's it. 
You can do the math on that. $68 million he made. He only won seven games in his NFL career. That's awesome. Good for him, right? But he's just one of the examples of the most overrated players of all time. But there's without a doubt some of the players who are the most underrated and were the most unestimable as they came out into the NFL. Brett Favre was drafted in the second round by the Atlanta Falcons, only to be traded away one year later. Joe Montana, who will probably go down as the greatest quarterback of all time, was drafted in the third round in 1979. In 1990, Emmitt Smith waited to be picked by the Dallas Cowboys. And, and you know who won a two that year? Blair Thomas and Jeff George. We see how that really worked out history wise but probably the most underestimated player of all time and it kills me to say this is tom brady drafted in the sixth round at the 199th pick he's laughing his way to the bank with his four super bowls and 120 million dollar net worth we underestimate the resurrection of jesus For many of us who grew up in the church, it has become this watered-down thing to us, and so we underestimate it in our daily lives. For those of us that are new to the gospel message of Jesus Christ, we underestimate its implications into our life. The thing is, is that the resurrection is the biggest deal ever. It's so big that literally we had a different message planned for this morning, and I wrestled with it at midnight last night and decided not preaching this message that I was supposed to preach this morning. I'm going to preach one on the resurrection this morning. Do we underestimate the resurrection of Jesus in your life, and my life? He is not here. He is risen. The history has never heard any other words ring so important, so true, so empowering. If Jesus is not resurrected, then, then what we're doing here is pointless. If Jesus didn't resurrect, then what we've been doing the last 2,000 years as this thing called the church is absolutely pointless. If Jesus didn't resurrect, then our hopefulness in God is absolutely futile. It's ridiculous. It's worth nothing. If Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead, then everything that Jesus did, all of his teachings, all of his miracles, everything is null and void. It doesn't matter. The resurrection matters. Don't underestimate the resurrection and the power God has in your life. Because it matters. And the lesson I want us to hear from the scripture this morning is that the resurrection brings us life. It brings us life. Many of you know uh, that I have um, a love in my life, and it's, it's called The Walking Dead. And um, I know, I know. Uh, I dedicate so much time to it every single week, and it's not my first love, but it might be my second or third. I'm not, I'm not really sure. It's hard to judge. But any of you who might know the premise of the show, it's simple that the world goes to hell, right? <laughs> this virus spreads among the people, and literally they are no longer dead. They are simply walking dead. They're walking around lifelessly mulling about life. That's what scripture says we are without Christ and without the resurrection. Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins in which you used to live when you followed in the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Paul writes this, that we are literally the walking dead. That 
before we know Christ, before we know the resurrection, before we know the redemption that God offers us, we're literally wandering around lifelessly about our days. We're living, but we're living life that's pointless. We're spinning our wheels in ways that will never matter. It will never come out to anything great. It's a feeling of helplessness, of frustration, of, of, of callousness to, to know that life is pointless apart from God. We're dead, the Bible says. But the point of the resurrection is to tell us that we have life. You see, Paul doesn't stop there. He says in verse 4, he says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even though we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Paul's saying, we're a bunch of walking dead zombies. We're just mulling about life. But God does something very fascinating. God does something that is so profound. God does something that is so radical for this world to see. God pours himself out in an act of supreme love into bringing Christ into this world. Who walked among us, who lived among us, who lived among our death and our destruction, but came to give us life. And through the resurrection, life is possible. The ultimate way of living, Jesus' resurrection, is vindication of his death. It's validation of his preaching. It's, it's, it's bringing the hurt and the loss into the light and love of God. Jesus' death and resurrection extends us into life, not just the next 20 years, but in the life that is to come. God desires to bring us life. Have you found life in God? Maybe you're sitting here this morning, and this is resonating with you on such a deep level. You have found that life and that love of God. And for many of us, we know, we, we sit in that void, we sit in that brokenness. And so what you need to hear this morning, what I hope you hear this morning, is that God desires to bring wholeness and fullness through his love into your life. And this is all possible through what? Through the resurrection of Christ. I was having a conversation recently with somebody and the implications of what they were trying to say was that Christianity was all about the afterlife. It was all about getting to heaven. But to me, I think that message falls short of what Jesus actually preached about. You see, Jesus, when he talks about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, he talks about it as this future thing, but he also talks about it as the here and now. It is the yet to come and the here and now kingdom. And so the message of the resurrection is not just about life in the age to come, but it's about God wanting to give us life now. Real life now break from the cycle of the choices we make in life, a break from the imitation that we create for ourselves, God desires to bring us fullness now. Maybe the best way I can illustrate it uh, is with this. I, I've, I've traveled the world often, and one of my favorite things to do when I travel abroad is to go to the open markets. Uh, and it's no wonder that this little 5'8", little tiny white guy has not died in some of the markets that I've gone to. There's some really sketchy places I've been around the world. And and I love open market because uh, you can just just barter with people and haggle down and get your prices. But my favorite thing in the open market is the rip-off stuff. Like the rip-off Rolex, the rip-off Nike shoes, the, the rip-off Oakleys or actually Oakies when you actually read the logo on it. And these things are great because for like $5 I can buy a pair of Oakleys. For $10 I can, I can buy a fake Rolex. For $20 I can buy a fake pair of Nikes. But in reality when I get home a few days later, a few weeks later, that watch stops ticking. <laughs> Those glasses bust on my big fat head every time I try to crease it across it. Uh, 
the soles and the Nikes begin to rip up. The treads are no longer there. It's an imitation. It's not a real thing. That's the life Christ is inviting us into through the resurrection. It's a break from the imitation and invitation into the real thing. A real thing that that invites us to no longer live a life of grudges and hatred, but a life when Jesus says to us, love your enemies. Pray for those who curse you. Bless those who mistreat you. It's a life where he's saying you can spin your wheels and build up your own little kingdom. Do that entire life. Or you can give your possessions away to those who actually need it. And to seek first the kingdom of God. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is inviting us into life. Real life. The resurrection story is an invitation. Will you follow Christ in finding life? Let's pray together. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.